You must remember this A kiss is just a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by Of all the podcasts in all the web You chose to listen to mine it again, Sam. The world will always welcome lovers as time goes by. Hello, good afternoon, Marlo. Hello, the web. How are we all today? Yes, it's Sam here, Sam Sethi on Marlo FM. And today I'm joined by my good friend and longtime friend, actually, Peter Jones. Hello, Peter. Hi there, Sam. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me along. Oh, pleasure, pleasure. Um, now, this is not the six foot two VC uh, dragon, I would call him. Dragon, isn't yeah, it? With big feet. With big feet, okay. <laughs> you know, Peter Jones, that Peter Jones does live in Marlow, but this is the more famous Peter Jones, I would say. So, Peter, who are you and what do you do? Uh, so, I'm a, a combination of things. I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, I've set up a number of businesses. I'm an investor. Uh, I'm a connector of people and i suppose together with all of that um also very passionate about technology okay so um you've got three current businesses that you're running today can you give us give us a flavor of who they are and what they do and then we'll start there yeah so uh smart anchor ventures uh is an investment business so we help people prepare and uh, raise an investment um, we invest as well uh, and again predominantly in technology uh, the interesting thing about that is it's much more about regional investment rather than uh, sort of focused on London. Uh, and then I have Trusted Network, which uh, I've been running for, founded and run, been running for six years. Uh, and that's a, a, an investment come networking club uh, where it's basically bringing together investors, family offices, high net worth individuals, entrepreneurs and sort of corporate executives from multiple sectors that just want to give a little bit back to the technology community, meet some interesting people, look at investment opportunities. Uh, and then the third is not a business, but it's a, a passion around uh, education. Uh, so looking at how do we change the education system for the future, because uh, I think it's flawed at the moment, and working with some really interesting people around that. So yeah, that's, that's, that's my time at the moment. Okay, so today's show is going to be all about really... Um, venture capital, how do you raise it? How do you get into that market? What are the opportunities around today? What's the exciting space that we're looking at? Um, we're going to be talking as well after the news about all the new IPOs that have currently happened, the Lyft, the uh, Pinterest one just going on, Uber just announced theirs today. Um, so there's a lot of um, talk now about the big IPOs in the US. But obviously, I want to also focus back on some of the key investments that are going on in the UK. So there's been a, a, a nice uplift but one of the trends that you were telling me about and maybe it's a trend that you're following actually from what i understand is less money is going into that seed stage now more money is going into the series a stage it seems that it's harder to raise seed funding as a startup or maybe it's not we'll, we'll come and talk about that maybe because mm -hmm. um, you know the biggest conversation piece and i've been involved in the startup scene here in the uk for a best part of 15 nearly yeah 15 plus years has always been how do you raise that seed fund you know there was the early early days it was you know nudge nudge wink wink who you know if you had a mate or you're in the right 
network of people. And then we had that wonderful moment where EIS, the Enterprise Investment Scheme, came out and SEIS, which allowed you to raise uh, with tax relief for investors. Yep. And then we had angel syndications and, you know, Bill Morrow and his his work. Um, but it seems that, you know, that is becoming less and less interesting because more of the money I see seems to be moving to that Series A. So uh, let's start off with you as a uh, an investment vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, how do, Who are you invested in today? Give us a flavour of some of the companies uh, and why you picked those companies and what you look for. Okay, so uh, so the core focus is technology, but it's actually quite wide. I mean, my background is sort of advertising and technology and started off looking, getting really excited about um, where, you know, the, the pro, pro, um, where data was uh, was sort of becoming a really big thing in advertising, uh, and so came across some really great businesses in the US uh, that were looking to scale. Um, so scale or come to the UK and Europe? Well, scale and so part of their scale is to come to the UK and Europe okay. and, and scale. Um, and rather than sort of invest in a team from over there, ship them over to the UK, um, we would sort of help accelerate that by recruiting uh, sort of local teams that, that had the knowledge. There's a couple of companies that were doing that at the time, weren't there? Yeah. So um, so we did it, first of all, with uh, Poindexter Systems, which was a, a behavioral targeting platform. So this is 2003, okay. pre, pre-Google PPC. So it was, uh, yeah. <laughs> Very it early was, days. Then. Uh, early days. And uh, they came up with this in- incredible proposition that uh, they could start using data to, to create really targeted uh, advertising and messaging on the fly. Uh, based on who you were, where you lived, what time of day it was, so it was the really early days of sort of uh, sort of leveraging sort of algorithmic uh, sort of targeting. Um, and unfortunately, uh, they, this was in the display market, so all the ad banners that you see uh, on websites. And then, unfortunately, uh, Google came along and launched their search PPC uh, business, which performed way better than uh, than display. Uh, and actually, interestingly, at the time, uh, a lot of the media agencies decided to just turn off a lot of the display and focus 100% on uh, Google PPC. Right. And then suddenly discovered that uh, that actually display actually helped with the performance of PPC. Okay. But anyway, so sorry, digressing a bit. And then um, the next PPC, one, just for those who don't oh, know. Pay-per-click yeah. uh, just, advertising on search. Just so we don't have too many anacronyms, yeah. in case there's a few who don't know. <laughs> I, that's I'm very ex- easily done. <laughs> I'm expecting most will, but anyway, yes. So um, so that sort of really created the model of... Uh, so that business exited a couple of years ago, actually, uh, and I'm now working on a different project with the co-founder of that. Um, then the next one was SearchRev, and the, so we created a blueprint of helping businesses to, to, to move to the UK and Europe. Uh, SearchRev was... Now working on uh, pay-per-click. Yeah. Um, and actually, the, the reason that got ex- exciting for, for us is that the, all our clients at Poindexter, when we were there, saying, look, if you can do what you're doing with display advertising in terms of targeting and, 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 um, and buying media uh, with display, but do that within, uh, within search, then we're really interested. Okay. And I met with the financial director who'd just come back from Palo Alto uh, with SearchRev, uh, and he, he started explaining what they were doing. I was like, oh, this sounds very similar to what we were doing with, with Poindexter. And so um, I spoke to my business partner at the time, Mark, and said, look, I think this is really interesting. They're looking to launch in the UK. Uh, let's have a chat. We spoke to them uh, on a Skype call 
and uh, three days later we were on a, on a plane to San Francisco. Uh, and really that sort of was the start of us invest, building a portfolio of, of investments and um, really hands-on. So it's a combination of investing and actually running the businesses. Uh, okay. And you took a fee for doing that? Yeah, took a fee, but we also, we actually owned the entity in the UK. And then when it came to them being sold, we would convert our equity back into the parent equity. Okay, business. so that was a way of reducing our fees. Yeah. I mean, the great thing about the US is they totally, actually Kate, you probably you spoke to the other. Kate Burns, ex-Google, yeah. yeah. She, she was actually a, uh, an investor and non-exec on, on, in SearchRev. Uh, we'll tell you that the US totally underestimate the UK market. Um, well, it's a small market, yeah, let's be I honest. Mean, at the time, Google, the UK was responsible for 35% of Google's ad spend globally. Uh, and, you know, we, we were delivering a pretty hefty media spend. Um, so, yeah, so we got acquired uh, by AKQA, which is a, uh, a big agency that's yeah. actually recently been acquired by WPP. <laughs> Because uh, they want to build their search capability. Yeah, but WPP now struggling because of oh. uh, that the Martin Sorrell's now left. Well, it's not just because he's left. I think the whole advertising sector is complete digital transformation. They're still trying to figure out what digital is. So. <laughs> really? Still? <laughs> I, I think so, yeah. Okay. But anyway, we could talk about that for, 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 for days. Um, so, yeah, so, um, so there was advertising. And then I think we got to a point where uh, we were just getting a bit disillusioned. We weren't seeing anything new coming in into the ad tech. It was all programmatic. It was looking at data and optimization less and less spend was being spent on the actual media and people were just sort of taking increasing parts, bits of the pie. And so we thought, actually, we want to focus more on the investment side, um, but still keep our hands in on the technology. So we thought, well, let's, let's, let's spread our wings and see if one, if we can raise a fund, a technology fund. And secondly, uh, let's look at, you know, investing in early growth stage technology businesses so how hard was it to raise that fund uh well we didn't in the end okay so it it's, was hard it's, hard. it's yeah. hard you know we'd never done it before who did you go and try and was this through pension funds and stuff like that no no, no, no. so through our dealings with uh launching businesses we we would come across vcs investors high net worths uh entrepreneurs that had exited that were looking to put their money back into things and get right get involved in their next uh project um actually the other thing i should say is that my business partner was living down in Wales, uh, so he was getting a bit tired. Hello, Mark. Yeah, hi, Mark. Uh, yeah, shame you couldn't be here. Uh, and um, he'd been hoofing up to London uh, every week. Uh, I think I, 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 we, we were sort of husband and husband by the end. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, and saw more of him the, than his the wife The Zek of technology. Yeah, well, yes, I'm not sure that's the greatest analogy. <laughs> Depends but, who's Anton, who's Deck. Well, true, very true. Uh, so um, we said, look, could we actually do what we're doing outside of London? Because also, you know, the whole sort of silicon roundabout thing, we were just seeing... <sighs> Oh, so sorry. many! So boring. I couldn't believe some of the business that were actually getting funded. Uh, in you know, and and uh, yeah, so we saw some really great opportunities down in um, down in Wales, and also just generally regional investments. So we said, right, okay, let's 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 focus on on doing stuff outside of London, tech focused, um, so that we can prove that we get you know, can find great businesses to invest in, that we actually know what we're talking about, that we can get businesses investor ready to raise investment. Uh, let's, let's do five deals. Um, so we did that. We launched that in 2014. Um, our first investment was with a company called Nudged, which was a health and well-being uh, business. So okay. they would actually capture data that would then allow you to set a goal 
in terms of your health and well-being. That could be I'm going to run a marathon or I just want to make sure that my sleep routine is, is better. And what, what year was this? Uh, this was in 2014. Right, OK. So quite early in, because now we're in this hiatus of those type of apps with calm and, you know... And uh, absolutely. Uh, and I, I suppose that's been one of our challenges is like Poindexter. I think we were probably behavioural targeting in 2003 we were like five years ahead of the curve. Yeah, it's finding that Timing sweet spot. Timing yeah. is, is, is quite, uh, as you know, is, is, is actually pretty crucial. I think we got better at that. Um, but uh, so, yeah, Nudge was our first one. Um, second one was a company called uh, Tazio, which was a recruitment technology. So, again, it's where there was big data. So data, technologies that we could see could scale. So they weren't just sort of, you know, niche, regional uh, sort of opportunities. Uh, third one was Perpetual, which is a really cool clean, well, still is a cool clean tech battery power management platform. Because um, they're quite niche. Yeah, but have got, I mean, and also focus on B2B. Um, B2C is really difficult. Actually, Nudged was, is a great example of that, that started off as a B2C proposition and you just need so much capital to just get yeah. audience out and, there. And that is one of the observations I'll make that the US versus the UK investment market is that we don't or can't for whatever reason put in the vast amounts of money required I mean Uber's had billions put into it mm-hmm. unprofitable yeah and and but now looks like as we're going to talk later IPO and make those billions back and all the investors you know their, their long-term debt is coming back mm. um, the amount of money now going into scooters yeah. you know and I can't get my head around that but there's billions going into scooter companies. Yeah. Um, and, of course, they must be looking at long-term, IPO it, get your money out. Um, so we don't have that sort of mentality. And maybe that's changed. I've been out of the market in terms of raising funds for a while, so mm. maybe you can tell me if it's the same well, or changed. I mean, the, the US is unique. It's just It's got 600 million people there. The UK is 60 million people. So you can, you know, everyone says fail fast, you know, you, you can, with less money, you can achieve a lot more traction. So a pilot over there, you can pretty much get to, you know, a million dollar revenue business very, very quickly. Yeah. Over here, you need a lot more hard work. Uh, we need to be a lot clever. You know, this is why the UK, I think, is really sort of leading the game in terms of artificial intelligence data, because it has to be really clever with what it's got to work with when it's starting out. And yeah. then that builds the foundation to sort of then globalize and scale the business trouble is we sell those companies too fast so what i was going to say was when i've gone to raise funding yeah um i remember going from my seed round of a million to Mm. raising going for series a raising yeah and the instant answer was are you revenue profitable already i'm like i've only been going nine months right and i had competitors in the u.s and i won't mention who um who were raising 10 million yeah right and that gave them a runway to go and have time to build their team, to go and find the deals, to go and get the platform, to get users, all those things. Yeah. The idea was exactly the same. In fact, it was less of an idea than we had. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that because it's my idea. Mm-hmm. No, it's but, true. It's true. But we didn't have time. We were just being harassed from yeah. literally day one to mm-hmm. get going. And I always regret that because... Um, at the end of the day, we're doing the same. You know, you mentioned all the AI companies, and there's some amazing AI companies, DeepMind being the most mm-hmm. successful. 
but it got sold to Google before it could even yeah. become, you know, the billion-dollar unicorn. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's so many different discussions you can have about, you know, is unicorn a great... Is it, is it a realistic goal to have or...? Well, it is for a VC. I think it's a, it's a milestone, isn't it? Yeah. Although I, the floor around that, you take DFJ, for instance, you know, you look at their, their first fund. and their, You know, VCs are in it for about sort of seven to ten years before they have to return the fund. You know, 22 years on, DFJ still... Still hasn't closed its, its its first fund because really? uh, yeah no they've still no they're, 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 they're still well, DFJ Spree yeah so you've Gosh. got so okay. you know they you know and actually that that is that is a challenge in itself for VCs because they're having to set unrealistic uh, sort of performance milestones for businesses that they invest in because their focus is on returning the fund not on the absolutely not on the success of the business but all VCs have that pressure but it's only because they get bigger exits in the in the US they don't have that pressure going forward because they've made their own money now sure and I think that again so that is the difference between the UK VC community and the the US VC community is the success rate or one you know again it just comes down to risk and how they perceive risk so I think the US is much less risk of or much more no much more much more risk averse than the UK um, and this whole thing about revenue, I totally agree, is that when you invest in a startup, it's a punt. You know, there's no one, you know, you can put whatever business plan, you can engineer a business plan to say whatever you want. Yep. For the first three years of that business, <coughs> Slideware, it's, it's as a, they call it. it's a punt. You know, you could be up and down on your revenues. You're probably going to pivot two or three times. You know, you suddenly realize that your idea doesn't have quite the right market fit. So you're going to have to sort of move things around. Um, so yeah, and actually mentioning EIS, that's ex- precisely why EIS, as you know, was brought in to sort of uh, ease the, or you know, help de-risk uh, investments yeah. and incentivise people to say, look, I want to put my money in. You know, that, none of that exists in the US, but you still get people putting you know pretty big checks in. I think the other thing is also if you look at the support network. I mean, there's a, a law firm that we're that I'm uh, working with WSGR, which was Google's law firm. You know, they're much more entrepreneurial. They, they don't just come in and say, we're going to provide a service. They actually say, look, we're going to take equity. We're, going to, we're actually going to commit to supporting this business because the legal side is going to become more and more important uh, as the business scales. So they actually create an environment that not just with capital, but with expertise, with resource and whatever, people are much more willing to sort of take uh, equity rather than cash and sort of say, look, let's just get the business grounded and get the foundations right, build some audience, and then we'll worry about the revenue later. Um, and then, but in the UK, it is, yeah, it is still about the first question they ask is when are you going to be, are you going to be revenue generating after 12 months? It's like, well. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, now in hindsight, looking back, there, are, there have been some really uh, good UK VCs. Mm-hmm. Um, Sol Klein and his dad, Robin, who, who set up their own mm-hmm. seed fund and then yeah. moved into uh, being uh, Series A. Mm-hmm. I think they weren't at AXA, were they? No, Index. Index, Index, yeah. and now they've got Local Globe. Yeah, and, you know, so they've done really well in helping the community there. They mm-hmm. set up Seed Camp. Yeah. Um, I remember Sol and I set up uh, Open Coffee Mornings. Yeah. So I think, you know, Sol's been great. There's been some of the guys at Axel, mm-hmm. some of the guys. Well, Balderton are good. Yeah, Nick. Um, Nick and um, uh, founder, yeah, um, oh, Ford Partners and Nick Nick Brisbane and the guys there. Yeah, Nick Brisbane's great. Yeah. Um, Peter Fish, great. Yeah. Um, you know, so there are some good guys in there. I always remember arguing with them a lot and, mm-hmm. I, you know, going, oh, I want more money. We need more money in the market. Yeah. You know, you, you're not investing enough. 
but you know you're saying as a VC you've got your own challenges which is you know we've got to take all this money that we've been given yeah. and we've got to return an investment on that you are yeah. in effect your own startup you're your mm. your your own business that's going out there having yeah. to raise that money and return that money yeah and actually so coming back to the original question of saying well look did we you know did we all, did we raise the fund and why why was it so hard we actually acknowledged that you know the, so the VCs work on a two what's called a two and twenty uh, model, which so means they charge a two percent management okay. fee, and then they sort of take a twenty percent carry on. Okay. So any profit that's made out of the, the sale of a business, they get twenty percent of. Uh, and and that 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 is really a model that's no longer sort of viable, or it's just becoming more and more difficult to uh, to, to 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 sort of return a, a good a, or to generate a good return. So we were saying, well, look, could we take the best of VC? private equity uh, and corporate finance and sort of create a new type of fund where one, if you look at the challenges, so one is sort of making sure that you're doing everything in the best interests of the, the, the investees or the business that you're investing in. For the investors, you know, liquidity is really important as well. So where do you get liquidity along the journey from startup through to exit? Uh, and then second, and then um, uh, lastly, it was, uh, you know, uh, how do we how do we negotiate the the best deal uh, that where everyone is actually aligned? So the the model that we came up with was to sort of create almost like a cornerstone fund where rather than actually have LPs, we'd create a limited company and just have raise fifteen to twenty million to put into a on, on the balance sheet and then invest from the balance sheet as a lead investor. Right. Um, we would put a maximum of twenty percent of the round in. Uh, so if it was five million, we put one point five million in, and then we'd go out and raise co-investment from VCs. So, so you're de-risking it exactly, yeah. And then once that, that once that had been done, then along the way there were different sort of liquidity potential liquidity events. So what, exits for you or for the entrepreneur? No. So this would this would be pre-exit. So okay. we're saying, look, let's say it's a seven-year life cycle to exit that we that we're, we're aiming for uh three years in you might have some investors that say look you know we want the opportunity to get out or certainly to liquidate some of our our, our exposure so uh we say well look there's secondary markets so now secondary markets so this is where as a private business you're able to offer your uh your equity in the business to other potential investors and take whatever upside in terms of the valuation that you came in at and where it is at that point in time. So we're seeing a number of secondary market exchanges now being launched in the market. I mean, this is something that's happening in the US. It's been happening in the US for for, for years. Um, you know, you look at Facebook before they IPO'd and there was a lot of sort of grey market trading uh, going on. Um, that's something that was very, very difficult uh, until recently to do uh, in the UK. Yeah, I mean... There's also, and again, when we talk about in in this section of the news, talk about how there are new forms of funding. I want to mm. come back to that liquidity, yeah. but also talk about ICOs and STOs, yeah. which are uh, internet coin offerings mm-hmm. as opposed to exiting on the New York Stock Exchange. And we're going to talk about IPOs. So yeah. the bit after news I really want to cover is IPOs, STOs, yeah. ICOs, and those means of exiting out of your business with a liquidity mm-hmm. element. Yeah. But going back to uh, where you are today, where we where we are. So you're, one of the things you talked to me about was not only 
what markets you look at, so a broad spectrum of technology um, and how you got into it, but also um, the team, the people. Mm-hmm. Um, how much more important is it the idea or the team, which is the most important part for you when you look at a, a proposal, I guess, because it's a piece of paper that turns up on your desk, I guess, or an email? Yeah, I think you can have as brilliant an idea as you could get but unless you've got the right people that are actually going to make it happen that idea is pretty much worthless um so you know and actually it's sort of it became you know i began to realize as we were sort of looking and evaluating you know the hundreds of of you know sort of potential investment opportunities that we were getting through email or through meeting people that uh you know everyone says that they invest in the people you know that's one a a really investment a really important uh, aspect of any investment uh, sort of decision yeah the team but then when you start trying to dig down with an investor to say well how do you or with a vc and say well how do you do that you know is that do you go for a beer with them do you yeah how do you how do you know what these people are like and you know it's a very intangible thing it's very fluffy and so i was thinking how do we de-risk our investments in the due diligence process by figuring out uh, who these people really are because the most important p- sort of characteristic you need to figure out is when they're not when everything's going well but when their back's really against the wall where you know they're running out of money or you know they're, fe- they're suddenly seeing that the market's not quite what they were expecting it to be or their product wasn't quite there wasn't the right market fit and actually you know we've had a couple of investments where you know the ceo was was you know ended up going totally off track uh you know one we had to unfortunately uh move move the ceo out and the other one that we just we parted company um so you know and i was thinking well what are the characteristics what, what do we call this and i think culture was the uh was sort of the sort of the main sort of area that we had to sort of focus on so how do we articulate um who the business is and who the founders are as opposed to what so part of our so smart anchor basically has an investor readiness program that we take all of our clients through so that's everything from how do you create a proposition articulate what you do what your objectives are uh, what the product is in a in a in a way that can be very quickly and easily understood uh but uh, very little of that, you know, you've got one page on the team with a photo and a title and a LinkedIn profile maybe. It doesn't really sort of tell you about who, 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 who the people are and who the team is. So we thought, wouldn't it be great if we could start evaluating that and then creating almost like a company culture Bible that you could hand over to an investor and say, within five minutes, they get a real feel for what their values are, what their, um, you know, what their, 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 their core objectives are from a, uh, a behavior and, and, and value point of view is. And that then gives you a much fuller picture uh, of, of who and what you're investing in and what the investment opportunity is. And you can start making much more informed about whether you're confident that the team has actually got what it needs uh, to actually take the business from startup to, to, to growth and through to exit. So, you know, I started looking at a number of tools out there or a number of methodologies and whether we had to develop methodologies. Um, but yeah, it's absolutely, you know, people are absolutely key. And I think you're beginning to see now, you know, suddenly looking at culture, you're seeing a lot of VCs. Um, so Albion and now have just written a big paper on the importance of company culture when they make an investment decision. Uh, you know, I think Excel are doing it. I think Dia, um, uh, Esprit are now. And why is that important? Why, why is the company culture, you look at, you know, um, Kaepernick at, at Uber, you know, the yeah. culture he built was a bro culture. Yeah, break yeah. it, do it, you know, make, go 
mad, you know. Um, it was like the Wolf of Wall Street type mentality. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you, you look at... Because recruit- I don't think Uber would be the company Uber is without it. No, absolutely. But the re- although Uber have had their issues, and I think oh, the massively. issues are, is that you've got to make sure that the people that you've got in your team are a match for the culture that you want to develop as a business. Okay. So it doesn't have to be a happy, happy business where everyone's really lovely to each other and it's nice, warm and cuddly. You know, banks would not survive, and, you know, the finance sector would not survive with that. What you do need to make sure, and this is the other thing about the investor readiness, is that saying, well, if you can create this sort of manual, this company culture manual, it, you're not just evaluating the business, you're evaluating the people that you want to bring into the business and make sure that there is a cultural fit between the two. So if you are in a more aggressive business where it's very competitive and that and the business thrives on that culture and that is the culture you want to build, you want to make sure that you, the recruits that you're bringing in actually th- also thrive in that, in that environment. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Google's the same. You know, you look at their, what their value was when they first launched, the no evil. Don't, don't, be, or don't, don't do evil. It, don't do yeah. evil. I mean, that, you know, in fact, we're talking about IPOs, and I think the IPO had a big, you know, as soon as they lost control of the business, that also had an effect on, on the company values uh, within the business as well. Well, I think their values have changed when, when they started building a, uh, Alphabet, yeah, uh, and they've taken. Don't well, be, it's gone through numerous yeah. uh, sort of changes as the, as the business. Well, when I had Kate in, you know, who was the CEO for Google in the UK, mm. you know, I asked her, you know, um, you know, what was the culture like, and she said it was a bro culture, mm. you know, white bro culture at that as well, yeah. and um, you know, she said, yeah, she used to sleep under her desk in work. You know, mm-hmm. famously, Marissa Mayer said she used to sleep under her desk at work. Yeah. Um, I remember being in Microsoft in the early days and, you know, going home at one, two in the morning, having, you know, written a deck and played with the software. Part of it was not the culture, actually. Part mm. of it was you enjoyed it. We were on the early days of riding the web It was it, yeah. and, and technology, and it was fun, you know. We were well, young, it was fun, and it was but if exciting. That, but if, if it's the exception to, rule, to the rule, then that's fine. When it becomes the norm... And you're sleeping under your desk every day. Oh, but that's then you get burnout. And so, yeah, I mean, I think I mentioned I mentioned a, uh, a company that I've been that I was looking at from an education point of view um, called Next Jump that have actually become more famous for their culture than they have their two billion dollar e-commerce business. And so, some of the values that they have, uh, which are really interesting, is one they have a no fire policy. Uh, secondly, is that. Uh, for every single person in the organisation from CEO downwards, uh, and that includes the founder, is 50% of their time is spent on revenue and 50% of their time is spent on culture. And the core reason for that, and one of the reasons that you may have been staying under the desk or working late... I never stayed under the desk. Okay. (laughs) No, 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 no. no. Uh, is, is, Is because there was also a threat that you know, if you were the, you, if you were seen to be the one that was leaving, you know, at six o'clock as opposed to nine o'clock, then you weren't actually doing your job. Yeah, I mean, that those days of that macho BS, as I call it, we, yeah. we there, there used to be a number of guys in Microsoft like that who who would wait until the boss went home. Yeah, you know, and watching. What, okay, he's gone now. Right, let's go down the pub or let's go home. You know, and and yeah. and would try and get in, and it made them no better at doing their job. Yeah. It, it was just clock watching. No, and they probably weren't being, they were productive probably only about 40 or 50% yeah. spent at the time. Yeah. But the, the, the thing that Next Jump realised is that you have to remove the threat for people to then be able to say, look, you know, and the other thing is that they had, you know, 
unlimited holiday. You know, so people, you know, companies that haven't quite Un- thought... Unlimited holiday. Yeah, so basically you can take as much holiday as you feel you deserve. And I guess and that, and, nobody you know, abused that. No, but no, because, because of the way they'd actually articulated the culture of the business. Okay, so before we go, because I, 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 the, the, there's a whole thing about uh, four-day working weeks I want to cover yep. in a minute. Um, when you get a, 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 going back to the question about entrepreneurs coming to you, raising money, mm. and you look at the team, yep. how do you get to know that team? So, well, initially it is. So, unlike a lot of VCs, Mark and I are very hands-on. So, we, it's not just the funding that we enjoy. It's actually, we want to build great businesses and yeah. actually, you know, take the, you know, the, the years of experience that we've uh, sort of gained through either launching our own businesses or helping other businesses set up an exit and then apply that to, to the new upcoming uh, entrepreneurs. So... We do, a lot of it is time. So we actually go, you know, we sit down with them, the, the investment readiness progress, you know, that, that we spend three months with the business. And what, in actually, that process, you're helping them with the deck, you're yeah, helping them with the interview techniques, what are you doing? Exactly. So it's deck, it's helping them to articulate what the business is because they may, you know, if you look at their initial deck and you just, you know, a lot of the time you're still asking why, why they still find it difficult to answer the why question and why is it important? Why does that matter? Yeah, well, whenever I advise starts startups i have i say i have to ask five questions actually who you are what you do why you're doing it how you're going to do it and when you're going to exit yeah and you'd think that be it's not rocket science it's not is it but when you actually then try and articulate it <coughs> you know trying to write a one pager that gets everything that you do across that includes the magic source that you know makes you different from everybody else that's really hard to do and you know if it's not if fine if that's if that's your day job in terms of putting debts together and you know so i think that's what we what we would bring is that we would bring that expertise and help speed up that process and at the same time you know it's collaboration at the end of the day you know we're, we're eyes coming in from the outside that a lot of the time are just pointing out the obvious uh, and saying right okay this is how we can articulate it so once we've actually got them ready then we sort of go out on sales, so we go out and see how they pitch, uh, both from an investment point of view and from a, a, a commercial point of view, and then we can come back and feedback and, and look at that. Um, and then, you know, recruitment, how do they how do they act when they're actually recruiting? What sort of question, you know, how are they portraying their business as a place to work? So there's, there's a combination of all those things. But again, it's sort of really fluffy. There's nothing you can really sort of, how do you measure that so that you can then as a, as, a, as a person that helped, or as an entity that helps raise, in, raise investment, repeat that so that you can sort of continually de-risk investments through more accurately assessing uh, people's culture and values or businesses' culture and values. So we started looking at a number of tools. So one is called the Happiness Index. Mm-hmm. So this is basically a, a, a platform that answers, has a number of survey questions that sort of, you know, that, that makes it very easy and unthreatening for founders people within the business uh to to start documenting you know how they're feeling what you know issues that they have great things that they're doing uh you know their productivity so we can start creating metrics and start you know creating benchmarks that we say well look unless they've got these five things that we're seeing as a trend we there's going to be an issue we need to either address it or we just say no uh, this is something that's very difficult to to to, to sort of change. Um, there's a, a really interesting one of our investors uh, who is a coaching um, uh, uh, um, consultant uh, came up with this methodology called um, visual metaphors at work, 
where she, you know, because actually articulating things is very difficult. You know, someone asks you a straight question saying, explain what your business is and and what you're doing now. You know, you can get sort of word block. So she's created a methodology that uses objects where you depersonalize everything. Give me an example. Uh, So, for instance, okay, at a corporate level, if you want to find out um, about a business and you've got the CEO, the CFO, various managers around the table, you can have your narcissistic CEO, you can have a really quiet CFO, you can have a, a really fun COO. When they try and talk to each other, they're probably the narcissist will basically dominate the conversation. Yeah. How, do you, how do you put everyone on a level playing field so you get the, a really meaningful and objective view of what, what the business is? So Chechen would basically put 10 objects on the table and go around the table and say, right, if your business was any one of these objects now, tell me, you know, tell me what it, you know, which object it is and why. And so what it does is it depersonalizes everything because everyone is now focused on the object on the table as opposed to the person that they're talking to. And also it inspires words and, and descriptions. And so suddenly you get around the table and within a very short space of time, you've, it's an icebreaker, you, you've, you've opened up the, the way to sort of have a conversation. And so we were looking to use the same method to start saying, well, how do you articulate culture? So if you, know, if you look at your company's culture now, which painting or which object would you choose that more, most closely describes your business culture now okay. and the values? And then you can say, well, actually, what, which object now describes the one that you want it to be? And so then you start defining it. It makes it a lot easier to define. Yeah, you're, you're, you're depersonalizing it. Exactly. So, and then also it can be used, you know, there's, there's a lot of family psychology around it. So I think there's the Lego uh, psychologists use Lego with families to sort of say, you know, you have the little Lego people that say, if this is your family, which one, what would oh, it okay. look like? Yeah, yeah. And again, it depersonalizes it. So that, that would basically help us to, one, just articulate the business and then using the happiness, so that's sort of um, just getting the, the foundations right and the values. And then happiness index is a tool to then say, well, how do we then execute that and actually start measuring it on a, on a more regular basis? Okay, because, I mean, the American constitution is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. Not the pursuit of money. No, exactly. And actually, happiness seems to be in another really, you know, we talk about health and well-being. Mm. You know, in 2014, well, now, you know, it's health and well-being. Everyone's talking about happiness and purpose. Uh, in in work, whether you're an entrepreneur, or a startup, or a corporate. Well, the business. other expression: live to work, work to live. Yeah, exactly. Well, everyone says it, but how many people are actually living it? Uh, but, okay, so so I'll, I'll I'll say why, in my humble mm. opinion, is because of Maslow's hierarchy of need. You, you can only be liberated to do those things mm. when you've gone beyond the certain key metrics. You know, basic hunger, basic needs. You know, so you've got enough money to stop and give it the, uh, okay, now I can, now I can uh, de-stress a little mm. bit. Now I can look around. Yeah, actually, you know what? More money is not going to make me any happier. Oh, true. But it's you not just about money. That. So, no, but, uh, well, you tell that to somebody who's struggling to put food on their kid's table and somebody who's going, I can't put petrol in my car. Yeah. And you go, don't worry about that. Money's not important. Happiness is. And they're not going to agree with you too much. Yeah. And I think that's the problem. You and I live in a world, I think, that is slightly disconnected sometimes because we live in a very privileged level of mm. life where money has become 
slightly less important. We're not in that Uber level where mm-hmm. money is not important. But we are comfortable enough to be able to drive a nice car, go on a holiday, you know, go out to dinner when we want. And uh, so money is, you know, five more hours in the office to earn mm. £1,000 more is not going to be the equation that you and I want. Yeah. Because I'd rather spend five more hours with my partner, same as you, or my kids, um, than that five hours in an office. So I think sometimes the happiness index is brilliant and I like it. Um, but I think we also have to be cognizant that's only open to several people who reach a certain level. But So there, I think, is the opportunity, is that I think every single business that operates globally should have a definition of their culture so that it addresses that if there is someone that isn't able to put food on the table and they're an employee of your company, you know, everyone from the cleaner upwards... Everyone should have satisfaction in their job. I mean, we yes, talk but- about education moving on. And I think, you know, every single person on this planet has got potential. You know, they have levels of competency. Uh, so why aren't they, you know, they should be rewarded, rel- you know, relative to their competency and also encouraged and inspired. So I, I get the Maslow hierarchy of needs, but I think everyone should have a... A level of happiness. No, don't get me wrong. Even if, if you're doing that horrible job of cleaning, mm. which I don't think anyone you no. know, starts off in life going, that's my life goal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I agree. Make it as good and happy an environment for them to do it within, yeah. just as much as the AI engineer sat in their, you know, wonderful, probably air-conditioned office, you know, and, and put on a glass pedestal to make sure they're happy for everything they do yeah um no i agree with that so okay let's let's take a couple of uh, we, we slightly detour but it's fun i like doing this so um okay so you've got an investment it comes along yep. you you look at the people that's yep. key you look at the amount that they, they want to raise so you yep. go 20 percent in you're not doing a full raise yeah um what happens when it all goes wrong? What happens when... Because there's always the... I always say one of the most important documents I ever wrote was a lawyer asked me to do it. Write the page when it goes wrong. Yeah, no, it's true. It's, you know, because contracts we're all, and deals, you know, they're there to, for, for worst-case scenarios. Well, they, they should... Worry, it's not about when it's all going right, because exactly. that's not a problem. Yeah. So it's that eureka moment. Yeah, I've just invented the greatest, latest new thing. Mm-hmm. I'm running around with my best mate. And we're going to go and raise money. Yay, we've raised money. And then six months later or a year later or two years, whatever, it's not gone to plan. Things have, you've pivoted, you've done everything you should have done. Mm. You've tried to create the right culture, but you know what? You're going to have to lay that guy off. You're going to have to, I don't know, reduce the salaries. You're going to have to cut people. What sort of character then do you find? um, Can you spot the good ones from the bad ones? Because there are bad people in that space. Yeah, I mean... One of our investments, I'm not going to tell you which one it is, but oh. basically it, it, got, it got to the point where, you know, it was honeymoon period, so everything's going great, the money's been raised, it's in the bank, and, you know, we're getting traction. Um, and then you start sort of seeing little cracks appearing where sort of decision-making sort of getting a little bit iffy. You know, there's listening is, I think, the, the hardest thing, is that, you know, entrepreneur is that balance of optimism and being able to sit back and have an adv- you know we, we but put- as an entrepreneur you always tell fake it till you make it yeah it well exactly but then at some point you need to you know they also say surround yourself with people that really know what they're talking about and and use them as much as you possibly can yeah now you're lucky if you get an entrepreneur that actually has got the, a bit of both you know they've got that drive and that passion but also can recognize when you know 
it's not you know it's not shameful to say sorry i don't know and to then say look can you help um but you know in this instance you know the ego set in they thought that just by raising the money that they succeeded so that's just so that's the thing but raising I, the money is the beginning it's yeah. not it's not the, but it feels not, like that whenever i've raised yeah. money and I know, I know exactly what you mean it's not the big it's not the end but it does feel like a massive pressure um you know i, I, talk I think to, it's different pressures because then you're like okay i've now got to look an investor in the eye and say i'm now going to take your money and i'm going to give you you know actually i'm i've done well if i give you a two times return yeah. what they're ultimately looking for is you know hopefully the 10 20, 20 100 yeah. whatever so uh, I've always said there's two two things. One, one, I think people are allowed to start companies too easily in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel that there should be a director's license. Mm-hmm. Now, I've been pushing for this for years and years so that, you know, I, I don't know, you know, I could be an 18-year-old kid or a 55-year-old man. It doesn't really matter. You have that eureka moment, yeah, I'm going to start a company. It's a brilliant idea. You jump out of the bath, you go to the internet, you go to startmycompany.limited.com, whatever they may be called, mm. you pay your 99 quid, and the next thing you know, there you are on company's house, you're a company director. Yeah. But the fiduciary duty that you are now liable People to... People don't even know what that is. No, <laughs> you know, you know, your tax returns, your quarterly reports, your all these things that you have to do, right, they don't come. Now, it's, it's a bit like saying, oh, I, I, I want to buy a car... And I don't get a driving license. Mm. You know, in the old days, and you know, our grandmas and granddads were doing that. They were they basically they could afford a car. You can have a car. Yeah. And now, you know, my kids, you know, for example, have to do more than I did, which is, you know, they have to pass a written test as well. Yeah. Um, I firmly believe there should be a one day or a one week or an online course of some sort mm. that says, do you know, before you start your company, go through this manual, whatever it may be, passes. Yeah simplish like you know road license test mm-hmm. you get a certificate and a number and then and only then can you go to company's house or go to the bank or go to formations company and go right here's my pass number mm-hmm. and then you put it in and it goes great at least now you know what's required of you yeah um, I, you know I'm, I, I firmly believe that has got to come if we're going to make this industry a I, 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 so part of me says yes I, I i get the rationale behind that but then i think there are some very experienced chartered accountants and directors out there that have still gone off the rails and gone everything from just making bad decisions to being fraudulent and ending up in I jail agree. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. i but, don't think any courses you know i think it's but then it's, it's like a, a license you would get yeah. you get fined so mm-hmm. for example you fail to present your company's house annual report yeah you get a, a little three point fine on your license mm-hmm. right yeah true you do that three times guess what you're no longer allowed to be a company director yeah. Right. Or you start a company and you go bankrupt mm-hmm. or you manage to misappropriate the money or whatever it may be, your license removed. Yeah. So you go along to an investor like yourself and you mm-hmm. go, Hey Peter, I'm 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 I've got this really great company I want to start and I'm I I, I you know, I want to raise ten million from you, whatever the number may be. Mm-hmm. And you just turn around to me, Have you got your license? Yeah. And I go, Oh, well, um, that's a tricky one, isn't it? Now, uh, let me tell you the story about how I, you know, blew 20 million in Las Vegas on, yeah. you know, cocaine and hookers. Yeah. And you go, yeah, I'm not, you're not the one for me then, <laughs> you know. And that's why I think a license is 
something I personally think needs to come into this industry because I think it will regulate it a little bit more. I think it's yeah. it's it's too gung ho. Um, anyway, that's just one thing. Yeah. Um, the other one we were talking about, and this is a role I think you take on. Mm-hmm. Um, raising money is extremely hard. Mm-hmm. Okay, it is. It, it, it's not a. The earlier, the harder it is. Yeah. As well. So a lot of lot of. Well, I firmly believe if you're a coder and you've got a bit of a business acumen, you mm-hmm. you can go much much further on your own steam, yep. self fund, than if you're just let's say, on the business side or on the coding side. I think you have to have both skills. Mm -hmm. Um, But one skill I think companies need to bring in, either external or internal, is the chief funding officer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, it's a skill and it's, you know, it's like you'd bring a consultant in to say, well, I need to develop my strategy in 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 this way. You know, I'm good at leadership operations and whatever. You can't be a, you know a jack of all trades in that and be really good at it so yeah i totally agree whether you i think it depends on what stage of the business if you're a startup you're not going to you know to recruit someone that's dedicated to fundraising i think is just commercially you you just don't have to you don't want to give equity away to do that because uh, you know there's only a certain life like you know there's only value but there are many many in. people who and i've met several who will who will prey on startups yeah. who will you know i want a fee you know 10 percent of the raise and then i want some equity and you don't make any money from startups so anyone who does that you know we've you know i've done it and you know you, you i'd rather invest in the business than yeah. actually take money out of the business so yeah. it, it, it grates you know so i think and again that's why we sort of mark and i focused on later stage businesses when they can actually they're revenue generating or they've at least got enough funding to be able to afford to to sort of help with fundraising or provide advisory services or whatever so you know but you're right i think um early stage i mean there is the argument that says that too much money is being raised you know there's not enough pain in you know why do you need to raise a million to start you know there's a lot of organic i mean there's a there's a good friend of mine who's uh, a member of trusted mm-hmm. you know sold his 90 million advertising business to mccann's and was a 90 percent shareholder at the end of it you know he basically built it up he didn't need to you know he, he he worked at it he managed to recruit you know he wasn't a particularly wealthy individual when he started he just figured out a way uh, and i think sometimes raising money in some instances is too easy and you can get too much funding. And so what that does is actually affect your decision-making. And I've seen, you know, there's a couple of recent incidents where I think businesses have failed because actually VCs have said, take on more capital because uh, we want to see you grow faster. Well, uh, that's and, that's the VC goal. I yeah. Because they've got to exit you out or get their return out quick yeah. from but, what we talked about earlier. Yeah, but so therein lies the misalignment between a business that is saying, look, we want to build sustainable business and actually answering your question of why haven't we got more unicorns in, in the UK? It's because VCs suddenly go, no, we're going to exit, you know. We've returned the fund. We're now we we we're now ready to push you to exit. Yeah. So, so so coming back to the question about um, you know raising investment, I think absolutely. You know, you as an individual, you know, you might be someone that's come, you know, very you know very intelligent, incredibly passionate. Uh, you've got an amazing idea. You come from a corporate environment. You've never worked within a startup environment before. So you're on a number of steep learning curves. You're 
now you don't you not you don't have a team around you. You're having to do everything yourself or with you you and your co-founder. Uh, you're then saying, right, actually, we what, do need. I some have capital. to make my own coffee. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> own coffee, everything. That's it. Never answer do a startup. Yeah, you know, answer the phone, answer the door, everything. <laughs> uh, and then and then yeah, fundraising is you 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 may have come across some investors. But, you know, invariably, the majority of people, one, because money's a really difficult thing to talk about. You know, you may know that a mate of yours has just sold his business, but you don't know whether it's for a million quid or whether it's for 50 million. And so, you know, it's it's a difficult one to go, especially at the early stage, you are going to go to people that you know. Yeah, and so and there's family. then an emotional yeah. connection that says, hang on, mixing friendship with or family you know, I've, I've I've got some friends that have taken investment from family, and it's gone. You know, and it's caused some real problems. Yeah, and you've got to be able to look them in the eye and go, "Look, I might lose your money," and unless you've got the confidence to do that, so then the other alternative is you've got to look at, you know, you've got to go into the investor community where they are, you know, sophisticated investors, and and you know, it it took me twenty years to build up my investor network. Well, startups don't have twenty years to do that so why not bring someone in uh, like yourself yeah to say we can within months and it does you know anyone who says that you can raise and actually the early you know raising two it's easier to raise 10 million quid than it is to raise 250 i've heard that so many times before but i don't believe it i you can be lucky i bet you if you if you do and there is there are some uh, there is some uh, analysis out there but for every single investment that we've either invested in or raised money for uh it just well one just just to do the paperwork can take six weeks. You know, it's like it is herding cats. Earlier stage, you're going to get more investors. You know, they're all putting in five, ten, fifteen, twenty k in a, in a two fifty round. So you suddenly get fourteen, fifteen investors. Yeah, I mean, I had that. I had that. You've got to my send out business. all the documentation. They're either on their boat or they're on holiday or they're busy or whatever. And and before you know it, it's toing and froing with different drafts of the agreement. It's getting easier with online now. You can do things electronically. But when you actually had to send physical copies out and get physical signatures and get them witnessed and whatever, there you go, four to six weeks disappears yep, I had before 14, the money's in the bank. I had 14 investors in my last business. Yeah, and so uh, so just once you've even found them, you know, so invariably you've got at least 100 to 150 initial investor meetings before you sort of whittle it down to sort of the, the 5, 10, 15 investors. It's going to take you just, just do the mass how long it takes to do an hour meeting with an investor. Yeah, which is why I say you need, whether it's external or internal, a chief funding officer, somebody yeah. who puts the deck together. Who... So they do the legwork. Yeah, you know? and then the CEO, CEO comes, comes in, in does the pitch, you know, yeah. kills it. You get the personality. Yeah, they are the who of the business. Yes. You know, who am I investing in? Yeah, uh, and and they come in and do that. And that their goes magic. back to the people thing. Yeah, that you mentioned. exactly. And so you know, actually. And again, sort of just trying to um, coach these people. You've got to strike that balance where you want their true personality and not a coached personality coming through. Yeah, and that, that must be hard as well because yeah. it's a bit like a cookie cutter. You don't want to turn them into yeah. a, a drone that, that says the right words. Yeah. Not everyone's a natural <coughs> presenter either. So. No, you can tell I'm not, and so that's fine. <laughs> no, not um, so. <laughs> um, But, you know, I have to be honest and say, you helped me raise my money for Blog Nation. Yeah. So, you know, I... Well, By the we, way. we had a really good relationship with Gemma. You know, that actually didn't take that to, what, two months? Yeah. yeah. You know, so that was, to be honest, that was good going. It was. Shame uh, Mr. Arrington I know, it, stole yes, it. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> I have There's to get that out there. There. There's definitely a book There's in there. There's a book in there somewhere. <laughs> Look, when we come back, we're fast approaching the news. When we come back, I want, I want to start talking about, um, so we've talked a little bit about 
the, the the company that you are, some of the examples. We haven't touched enough, I think, on the examples of companies mm-hmm. you invest in, yeah. the success rates that you've had, how long it takes to exit companies, mm-hmm. some of the new fu- forms of funding that are coming out that we mm-hmm. want to talk about. Um, you know, and also there was some interesting news about German companies coming into here, the 70 yeah. mil- 700 million, and then the big four IPOs that have happened recently. And I just want to get your take on, you know, what you thought of them, mm-hmm. um, you know, so there's a lot going on in this market space right now. People say, yeah. you know, with that B word, the Brexit word, it's all yeah. a little bit doom and gloom, and it mm-hmm. feels it. But I do feel that there is oh, a... there's a lot of capital out there. There is. And yeah, it, maybe there's too much capital chasing... Mm-hmm. Oh, there is. ...too few good ideas. Yeah. Um, I don't ever get my head around why you have to invest $100 million into an early startup when mm-hmm. you can invest... 10 times 10 million to 10 really good startups. Mm. I've never got that, but maybe... It's different investment strategies at the end of the day. I mean, everyone, you know, there's, there's so many different schools of thought on that, but it is changing. It is changing. Um, and also, one area I want to talk to you about is education. Mm-hmm. Um, so, wow, we've got a lot to pack into the next yep. half hour. But you, you're also involved in education yep. and helping people trying to get into this world of entrepreneurship. Yeah, well, it's not just entrepreneurship. It's actually just looking at education in, in general and saying, look, it needs to change. It's, uh, but we, we, we can talk about that uh, in more detail later. All right. So uh, with Fast Operation Newts, we'll see you on the other side.
we go. A little bit of the Rolling Stones and Brown Sugar. That was Peter's track that you requested. Peter, why that track? Uh, well, it's uh, interesting. Until uh, my father's in the sound recording industry, uh, and I discovered recently that he was the engineer on the first ever recording of that track, and actually played it at his twenty-first birthday in uh, the early sixties. <laughs> wow! Yeah, there's, there's something about those. They're they're all really short tracks as well, which is quite interesting to look at. Yeah, no, absolutely. So he was a sound recorder. Did yep. he do any other? things that you you know yeah you so so my grandfather sat out the sound business it's, it's the world's oldest sound engineering business so where's it based? 90 years old uh is in wimbledon okay uh my grandfather set up a studio in morden so uh, he'd love to come in here and play oh yeah well unfortunately he's no he's no longer no, not, with us but not your fa- grandfather, yeah. Your father, <laughs> oh yeah no ab- absolutely uh but uh my grandfather set up a, a record label called oak records and it was basically the preferred uh, sort of studio for doing demos. So we had the uh, for bands like the Who, the Bee Gees, Rolling Stones. Really? Yeah. Wow. So uh, and you probably didn't even know any of them. I well, I wasn't even alive for oh, uh, okay. for, for some of that. So uh, thank you, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he uh, looks younger than he is. No, he, but, yes, he does. Uh, but yeah, and I, you know, unfortunately, the the studio doesn't exist anymore because technology no longer any need for big recording studios, but very much more on the sound engineering side. So now does all the sound for Glastonbury and uh, oh really. Wow. Wimbledon Tennis Club, uh, Lord's Cricket Ground, a lot of the big cathedrals. So specialist in sign, sound design, basically. Gosh. Uh, so yeah, skills you never knew your parents had. I know, and I never, I didn't go into the business. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> much yeah. to his annoyance, maybe. Yeah, because the, the guy who set up Marlow FM is um, Tim Ashburner, and right. Tim, I think, is the head sound guy at the BBC. Oh right. So he he did the Royal Wedding. He yep. was the sound guy for the whole of the Royal Wedding. Oh right. Okay. And he's got some great stories. So Archie Jones did all the sound for the outdoor outside broadcast for uh, for the Jubilee Royal Wedding. So it's a royal appointment company as well. So. Oh, nice. <laughs> well done. Well done, Mr. Jones. <laughs> he's done, he's done um, well. Yes. Um, okay, so we we were talking to you, Peter, about the fact that you are a VC, a venture capitalist, that you are an investment person. Um, you help startups. You've moved, I, I guess it's fair to say, slightly more up the, the investment tree, more yeah, towards Series so, A now. Yeah, so raising investment Series A role. Yeah, and providing external, what we call chief funding officer skills, mm-hmm. you know, um, helping them get themselves investor ready. Mm-hmm. Um, you're looking at about a 20% of the investment raise mm-hmm. in terms of your risk risk factor yeah um and we said teams have to be important so it's about mm-hmm. the people um one of the other businesses that you well t- two other businesses you run one one is trust network mm-hmm. um why do you run that what, what's important for you to run that for um well i think we discussed before there's a lot of serendipity in 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 one meeting great businesses investing in businesses um but you actually have to work it and uh so i i do a lot i meet lots of people uh i like meeting interesting people uh and was going to various events and and sort of ended up doing work with these people and thought hang on we've got something quite interesting here uh as a a good friend of mine and and colleague who's a co-founder of trusted network uh, called andrew wolf and he used to host these events called pies and it was entrepreneurs and it was investors and and he was he's a lawyer so he had uh sort of his law firm clients coming along 
And we thought, hang on, we've got something here. There's a really nice feel to it. It's no pressure. It's very random. Uh, let's sort of formalise it. So six years ago, we created Trusted Network with a view to doing initially quarterly events. So we'd have pitches, we'd have talks, we'd have basically it's just a forum, a safe, a, a sort of a, a, a no pressure place for people to come together, uh, meet meet like minded people that were passionate about business, investing, and technology, uh, and see see what happens. And this is and this is invite only, I guess. This is invite only. Um, you know, so we have family offices. So these are family. You know, people that have made you know, good money in, you know, either selling up businesses or running businesses uh, that have a family office and are looking to invest. Uh, entrepreneurs, uh, high net worth, so these are individuals that have just got money to invest. And then corporate executives where they either want to become advisors or they, you know, it's, all, it's, it's networking to sort of find opportunities uh, that, that, that are relevant to them. So where we are now and where it's evolved is that we now do monthly events um, in January, we had Peter Mather, who's the CEO for Europe for BP, coming and do a sort of a talk on the future of energy and mobility. And then we had two clean tech mobility businesses uh, come and do sort of two nice, series eight nice pitches. Match, yeah. So, you know, the, the, the pleasure for me is just bringing together like-minded people that there is no effort required to have a conversation. And out of it, you know, investments come out of it. So there's, you don't even have to pitch it. And actually, that's a specific point in the membership rules is that there is no selling uh, at the business. That can happen afterwards. Yeah. But the point of the networking is event is that it's a very relaxed atmosphere where people just talk. And that's been the success of it. So we've got about 40 members at the moment, and that's growing. Um, in February, we had a, an education event. So it's looking at the future of business and education. Um, we had Lord Jim Knight come in, who's chairman of TESS, basically talking about you know creativity in, in education. And actually, Next Jump, the CEO of Next Jump that we were talking about earlier, came in and talked about their Adopt a School initiative. So okay. Educating people through um, coding and, and hands-on. They, they, they work with Lego Code uh, to sort of help in the education process. And then uh, in March, it was a prop tech event. So we had three property technology businesses come in and, uh, and do a talk and pitch uh, for investment. And so, yeah, so I just sort of curate those. And the per- you know, it's great for me because it means that I can curate my network of investors and people with knowledge that are going to help either my portfolio or people that I know who need you know, advice or investment uh, uh, for their businesses. Um, yeah, so, and then we're looking at actually creating a specific investment club uh, for Trusted, uh, but again, for later stage opportunities. So, um, so yeah, looking forward to doing that. Okay. Um, and you, the third part of your business legs, I guess, is that you've got a, an education element to what you do. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I, I'm dyslexic and was really rubbish at school. And I, always, I was lucky that both my parents were on... Do you know dyslexic spells I am sexy? Does it... <laughs> <laughs> It may do for you, but maybe not for me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Thank God this is radio. Anyway. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, so, yeah, so, yeah, so dyslexic, you know, it's, it's not a disability. It's, you know, you just have to learn to think differently. I always think the word uh, dyslexia is really unfair. I can't even spell dyslexic. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> sorry. That's an old joke. Right. Uh, so, yes, uh, go on. 
I, I came to the conclusion that in sort of trying, you know, through education, um, you know, I was just really bored at school, uh, just found it very difficult to learn because I had to be taught in a specific way, you know, put a textbook in front of me. I was like, what the hell is this? But draw something up on a board and draw a diagram or just give a context to it. Then it, it, I was like a sponge and, and, and I figured to learn like that by myself. And I was thinking, well, you know, teachers find it very difficult to inspire. They're trained academically, but have got very little experience of the big wide world and sort of working in business. And that's actually cool. You know, how do you make decisions about your, your which O-levels or GCSEs or whatever you take when you don't actually have anything to judge you on? You're told that you need to do geography or maths or whatever without having a context. So I started getting a, a, you know, more and more into sort of thinking that businesses need to take more responsibility in curating and, and sort of inspiring employees of the future. You know, so I use the football club analogy, you know, Real Madrid or Arsenal or Liverpool basically invest millions of pounds a year in their football academies, you know, sort of have scouts going out looking at kids from the age of six onwards. And they don't just train them in the art of football, but they also, they just, help them grow in life mm. you know so they know that you know they've got a one in a thousand chance of even making the bench let alone actually playing on the pitch but so they need they they, they know that they need to sort of educate them and inspire them in 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 lots of different areas of of uh of, of their sort of uh passion and capability so i started looking at how we could um sort of get businesses more involved i got involved with a, a charity well uh, uh, an organization called every child needs a mentor uh, which uh, Herman Stewart, who founded that, uh, had a goal to get every child in the UK access to a mentor to guide them through, you know, everything from you know primary school all the way up through to to sort of university. Uh, and then another uh, organisation called Founders for Schools, which a lady called uh, an amazing lady called Sherry Kutu, mm-hmm. uh, who was Reed Hoffman's uh, from LinkedIn's first investor and, and partner, and Reed's an investor in, in Founders for Schools, and that's about how you connect entrepreneurs with schools to then inspire kids to figure out, you know, is, you know, what do I want to do for uh, for a living, and, and and what what are my passions, uh, and but. The challenge I was seeing is every time I went to speak to a business, it was like, well, you know, do you want money? Do you want, you know, uh, what do you want us to do? And there was no real proposition that brought all of these different entities that were trying to help children in in, in inspiring them. Uh, So I've started conversations with various people to sort of, and suddenly figured out that other people realise that there are issues there. And so what we're talking about now is how do we sort of look at the landscape of all these various sort of educational organisations that are all trying to get businesses involved, but it's all fragmented. How do we coordinate it better to then take a proposition to businesses saying, look, it's not just your money that we want. We actually think your people that you recruit need to be more involved in inspiring uh, and educating people as part of the school curriculum. So how do we do that? You know, how do we make them into mentors how do we make them into educators you know so that they actually spend time in school and saying look this is why you need you know you need to learn geography this is why you need to learn maths uh it's not just because you need to learn how to do fractions and 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 do a formula it's because you need to know how to design a car or you need to know how to you know submit accounts or all the life skills that you know, you don't sort of learn until it's too late. And also in terms of just making decisions in terms of whether you want to go to university or not. Well, yeah, I mean, my daughter's just gone and I have to say, had she got a strong passion for anything, mm. um, 
I would have probably centred something like textiles in the US, you know. Yeah. It's and, all left to chance <clears throat> at the moment, I think. It is left to chance, but that's because the school system was once designed to be, in the Victorian times, for the empire. So yeah. it was designed to create engineers. So, you know, Pythagoras' theorem and, and learning all those things yeah. that we learnt. To the privileged few as well. Yes, but what they wanted to do was create bureaucrats. Mm. So learning those things. I mean, I, I've never used a cosine and a sine and a tangent since yeah. I left school. Yeah. But those things were important because they wanted people to be engineers. They wanted to get people and some of the other skills that were being taught, it, certainly in maths, was all about, you know, being able to do admin. Mm-hmm. Um, what we aren't doing, and it's a chicken meat egg scenario, is you know what we really want is what you said earlier. We want people to learn to code early. We want people to learn AI. We want people to learn all of those things. We want not people to learn how to remember things, mm-hmm. you know, rote fashion, you know, um, but we want people to learn how to use contextual analysis. Now, that doesn't seem like a good thing for a seven-year-old maybe mm-hmm. they have to learn the basics but but for teenagers you know you look at my kids they'll ask you know alexa or siri or, or for, for a question and they get an answer back mm-hmm. what they've got to then do is take that answer and contextually understand the value of it and, and be able to then reuse it and none of that is coming through at school that i'm aware of yeah well i think I suppose I, do, I suppose you're saying similar thing to what I'm the, the sort of where I'm going with this is that one you need to learn the academic element but it's all being done on in isolation to me the way I learned uh, most effectively is actually just doing it and then understanding why I needed to do it a certain way so then matching the theory with the actual doing yeah so I'm it's all about vocational Education And again, this is where I think the business is coming because they're saying, yeah, so to me, maths really shouldn't be called maths at all. It should be called cash. You know, every child should get a 20 quid note when they go into class and come out with 50 quid, Hmm. you know, or with five quid because failure is you need to know the upsides as well as the downsides. And so there's a not just an educational element, there's a, um, a, psychology, a psychological element, mm. there's a, learn, a life-learning element yeah, to right. it. And so every single entertainment experience or experience you have in life, you should have an educational, or you should have learned something. You know, why, don't, why doesn't every film in the cinema you know, have, whether it's fact or fiction, you should come out having learned something without even realising that you've learned it? I think you know. I think the role of film may be to entertain. I'm not sure it's always. I'm not saying it's, so. So again, it's, it's it's not binary either. So everything that we do, and I think I, you know, most random things that I do, I've learned something from it that's become practical in something I've done in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of films do. I mean, one of my favourite films is A Wonderful Life. Yeah, you know, that's got a great learning from it. Yeah. You know, it's a great entertaining story, but it has a, a great learning. I think you know, there are films like Fast and Furious that have some learning, isn't it? You know, about family and bonding and friendship while they're shooting each other up and driving through mass um, yeah. car chases. But it's, but it's not just about life <coughs> skills. I think it should also be about, you know, so I'm not saying every film should have, you know, tick the box and saying you've got to learn something from maths or language or uh, or life skill. Uh, it can have one or the other because, you know, we're not always watching a Fast and Furious. We might be watching a It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. Um, but then also if you're reading uh, a fictional book or if you're reading, you know, or if it's whatever sort of life experiences you have, I think if you can uh, 
build an educational element into it and actually make it fun. You know, it's a bit like John Cleese with um, with video arts. Is that he his 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 training courses were all based around comedy because people came away having enjoyed the course and suddenly realising that oh so that's what management's all about yeah no I I see what you mean you know? and I think I think education I'm, look I'm not an educationalist as yeah. in I don't I'm not a specialist in it so I can only go from what I've seen my children do mm. and I think it's very straitjacketed I think it's very narrow I yeah. think it's very limiting it's a tick box as well um, I don't think they come out with the GCSEs and A-levels that had any real value. Yep. Um, my daughter's going through university. I think that's just going to be a tick box. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it was for me. That's the only reason I went to yeah. university in the end is because I needed a bit of paper. Yeah. Didn't matter which <coughs> which degree it was. Um, and in fact, Google, uh, there was an article that Google have now just stopped. They used to only recruit people that had a university degree. Uh, and actually, we recruited the the only up until up until now the only Google employee that did not have a university degree, uh, and Kate had it written into her contract oh, that, right. that she could be fired if he didn't deliver, uh, and he did deliver. You know, he's delivering tens of millions in sales. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. but you know, so that's a classic example. Is that you know the the way that education is measured, you know, and I think you know why businesses why don't businesses look at people's competencies outside of having a certificate. I think they're going to begin to because um, well, 9000 9, a year for your, your university education when the professor decides to turn up for one lecture a week yeah. makes you... I mean, so friend's daughter was at Bristol doing history. Two lectures a week, two hours a week of lectures. Mm. The rest was go and learn it yourself in a library yeah. and then we'll test you at the end of it. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't get that. I really don't get the value... The value exchange is very poor. I, I, I told my godson, who went to Nottingham, I said, you're paying £400 a lecture. Yeah. Based on the number of hours you're doing and the amount you're paying over the three years you're going to be there, that's £400. I wouldn't pay £400 a lecture. Well, it depends. Not for the value I, I get back. If, if the professor is saying, this is where you need to look, because to me, the professor shouldn't be giving them the answers. They should be saying, this is where you find but the answers. two answer. hours a week? True. So, you know... It's not a value exchange. Yeah. It's a poor value exchange, I think. And I think, I mean, the one thing that happened last year with all the kids was that they went from 6,000 unconditional offers to 60,000. Oh, it's bums on seats, isn't it? It is, completely, because the universities now know it's a numbers game. Yeah, that's how I got in. (laughs) Yeah, and I just think, I think what we're going to find is that more vocational training does come in, I think. Now, we're fast running out of time. I want to cover a few more things. Yeah. and one of those things is new forms of investment. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about traditional angels, yep. and we've talked about Series A, which is where your sweet spot is now, mm-hmm. um, and syndicated uh, funding. Yep. Um, ICOs, Internet Coin Offerings, mm-hmm. and IPOs, Internet mm-hmm. Placement Offerings. So we've had four really big IPOs occurring or about to occur. We've mm-hmm. got List, the, the taxi firm, Uber, the other taxi firm. You've got Pinterest, you've got Slack. You've recently had Spotify a few months mm-hmm. back, Airbnb obviously famously a few years ago. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that's the exit strategy, which the Americans seem to have got down to a fine art, mm-hmm. which is invest big early, take the risk, um, and then you'll get it all back in the IPO or the I. Um, what do you think of the the way it works? Because the, the one that really got me was on the list one. Mm-hmm. A whole bunch of VCs piled in just before it went to IPO. Yeah. 
uh, got their equity stake in it. It was to build the market, basically. You know, so people don't realise with IPO that you don't just list a company. It is like it, you're raising money yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. So, and it, it's six months, a, a year of uh, of basically going around yeah, I've meeting done a few all the institutional shows, yeah. investors to do that. So it isn't just people in the marketplace suddenly saying, yes, well, I'm going to buy a few shares in this, and then suddenly you're raising, you know, billions of dollars. Um, so, yeah, so there is a bit of market, there's market making uh, at, at the end of the day. Yeah, now. but what, what I guess annoyed me was that as soon as they went to market list, it was at $88. Yeah, and then they're out. Then they took all their money out. Yeah. So they were billionaire, they were taking billions back out on mm-hmm. just straight away. The, and individual investors couldn't do that. It was only mm-hmm. them. Yeah. So they took their money they straight out. preference time, yeah. time base to do that. So they get all their money back out. So they hike it up, get the share price in, get all the people on it. Then they take their money out. They're done, Jack. We're okay. Mm-hmm. We've got our initial investment back. We've got a little bit of profit out of it. Lovely jubbly. And then it's, you watch the poor investors who come in after who then mm-hmm. take the hit. Yeah. I suppose, yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a slightly then, dodgy model. No. It's, this is the VC. This is the VC market again. They've got their objectives. They've got to deliver certain milestones, and I'm certainly not condoning it. But you know, they're traders at the end of the day. Yeah. So they're going to see where's the upside, and they're not going to turn down that opportunity. So, and, are, and and are way more aggressive in the US than they are in the UK. Yeah. So I think you do see slight. You know, you see different practices in uh, depending in which region you are. Um, the other one that we um, saw was a different type of IPO. So you saw Spotify mm-hmm. and Slack not go and do the roadshow. Yeah. They literally said you can buy equity yep. into the company. Didn't that was a nice yet. change. Yeah. Um, the other one we're seeing though is ICOs, internet coin offerings, Bitcoin mm-hmm. offerings, where you fundamentally you don't. So, f- I had a, a show about blockchain, and mm-hmm. and the difference was with an IPO you get equity and a voting right. Yeah. With an ICO you just get an equity with no voting right. So, yep. so that's the difference. So I see the, what we're, we're beginning to see is this model where, I guess entrepreneurs don't want to li- liquidate their equity holding, mm-hmm. their, their voting right, yeah. and they're moving away. So it's, I think what we're beginning to see the market is new forms of investment appearing. Yeah. I think um, China's going to be really interesting. India's going to be an interesting market. Mm-hmm. We're seeing big, big uh, companies, you know, uh, Flipkart and ba- uh, Baidu, Alibaba. and yeah. So I think... Um, well, I mean, on the on the ICO, um, there are a number of challenges. Is one, it's linked to crypto, which yeah. is so volatile. So you may have raised thirty five million, and then suddenly that thirty five million in value turns down to seven five million or five million. And also, it's it's not tradable currently. You know, it's you need to then convert that into fiat in order to be able to then use it within your business. So there are a number of so ICO is not a particularly popular means of raising investment at the moment, but. We'll see. It'll change. Yeah. Look, we're fast. We are out of time. We could have gone on for another hour, I reckon, Peter. Thank you very much for coming in today. No, it's been been brilliant. Thank you very much for having me. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship.